so much for joining us today on what is now our 25th episode. Today you are joined by your hosts, as always, Tiara and Jack. And today we have a very special guest on the show, which I'm sure many of the listeners will be familiar with. His name is Joey Cantlin, and Joey is what I would say is a renowned physique coach here in Brisbane, Australia. And thank you so much for coming on the show today, Joey. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. It's, um, it's an honor to be here. Um, yeah, I guess I've been been doing this for a little while now. I'm about five or six years. Um, obviously located in Brisbane, like you said, but I actually work predominantly online now. But yeah, that's that's pretty much my story. I, I do a bit of face-to-face coaching. I do a bit of online coaching. Um, yeah, located here in Brisbane and here to answer any questions you have. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so that'll basically be the plan for today. We're just going to be asking Joey a lot of questions and making the most of his experience and knowledge uh, for all the listeners as well as us. So we'll get, we can get straight into all the questions. So cool. yeah, we'll start off with some pretty basic ones about yourself and just so we can all get a bit of an idea of how you got into the health and fitness industry. So that's pretty much what the first question is. What got you started in the health and fitness industry and why did you choose physique coaching as a career avenue? So what sort of got, well, how I sort of got into it was I think from about 16 years old, I always sort of had a passion for going to the gym and, you know, training obviously, but it was for performance related reasons. So I used to play a lot of um, AFL football, a lot of basketball, a lot of tennis. So um, it required me to train, obviously. And then I sort of fell out of that later in my teen years and then just started going purely for the sake of looking better at that time i was working in construction um as a fly and fly out yeah a fly and fly out employer um, employee and i had a lot of downtime from work in between swings and at one point we got told that we'd have about six months off so i decided to go and do a personal training course and then got a job doing pt in a gym and i kind of never really looked back i just stuck with it and then Probably about six to 12 months into my PT career, I had someone ask me if I prepped people for shows. And I said, well, actually, I have a very strong passion for nutrition. I've done a lot of research, but I've never actually had the opportunity to prep someone. And then um, prepped them and prepped another person along with that. And they both did extremely well. Um, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. So mm, That's awesome. I feel like that's how a lot of people get into it as yeah. well. They like one or two people ask if um, you can help prep them. And then, yeah, that starts it off. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing, Joey, how, you know, you've just kind of built yourself up all by yourself, like starting yeah. from the bottom and you've really just climbed the ladder. Yeah, I guess um, I did get, I wouldn't, I, I don't like to say I'm lucky, but I did catch a bit of a break with the first person I ever prepped was quite, um, quite popular. Mm-hmm. And obviously when she did really well, contest prep, or competing wasn't really so big back then and that's when it kind of did start to take off so I had just an influx after that and then they all did really well had an influx after that and then it was just a snowball it can't just be chance sorry (laughs) it can't just be chance then yeah it's 50% luck 50% um good coaching I guess so how long have you been coaching for Joey um it'd be well for contest prep it would be about five years now and for I've been a personal trainer for six years. Damn. All right. And also, I so I've noticed from online that you definitely coach a lot of very successful female athletes. But would you say that you coach a specific type of um, competitor or are you all around everyone involved in physique sports? 
and pretty much just all round. I um I dabble in all of them. Earlier in the um, earlier in my physique contest coaching career, I prepped a lot of bikini and fitness competitors because they were sort of the newer divisions and they were getting very very popular. And bodybuilding and figure kind of started to die out a little bit in that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so and a lot of the bodybuilders and figure competitors they would do their own preps. Um, and then it kind of, the industry has changed a lot from when I first got into it to what it is now. Um, but yeah, I've, I prepped pretty much everyone or every division at some point. I think the first actual female figure competitor I prepped, she went on to win three back-to-back overalls and two pro cards and two separate federations. So (laughs) I was like, okay, maybe I can do figure as well. (laughs) Damn, that is amazing. And that actually ties in really well to our next question, which asks, how have you seen the industry change during your coaching career? Wow, there is a lot of difference from when I first started. In terms of the physique contest side of things, just things like divisions and the way shows are ran, they're completely different. Like um, the shows are just so much bigger. Um, federations are trying to put more emphasis on giving back to competitors. Um, and making it more more attractive because physique competitions are such a big thing now. Um, it's a very good, um, you know, money-making avenue for a lot of federations. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing doing more and giving more. And in terms of the coaching side of things, a lot has changed in the last sort of five to six years. We've had a lot more research come out. And because this is something that's becoming a lot more popular, there's just a, a whole lot more going into it as well. Yeah, I guess we're both quite lucky in the sense that we're still obviously very early in our careers, but we've come in at a time where there's an abundance of research and it's it's as easy as just clicking on well, just clicking on the Instagram app and following your your favorite research scientists and it really is. Exercise. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, and it's wonderful to see now, you know, there's just such a huge push for evidence based practice yeah. as well. And um, I just, it makes me so happy to see that that's coming into the bodybuilding realm too, because I'm sure you've probably seen a lot of disasters in your time that you wouldn't necessarily agree with or poor practice (laughs) yeah I I was lucky enough to sort of come into the industry exactly when um Lane Norton was quite popular and he was Mm -hmm. he was the go-to guy and he was putting out a lot of um a lot of good information and um I kind of learned a lot off him and my my first ever coach he was prepped by Lane as well so I, I was lucky enough to learn a lot through Lane and him as well so I I did I never really had had to experiment with bro methods and stuff like a lot of um a lot of people who have been in the game for longer, um so been lucky enough to do that. Uh, so moving into our first listener question by Kate Mellers. Yeah. So it says um so this was asked by Kate Mellers and it yep. says which exercises have you found to be the most valuable to include in a female's program to develop their physique? Cool. Thanks, um, Kate. It's a great question. Also, um, congratulations to Kate on her recent efforts at her, um, well, in her season, very great physique, a lot of potential, and we'll, we'll go very far, and obviously coached by you guys, so oh, fantastic Thank job. you. Yeah, we're so excited for her. <laughs> yeah, incredible physique. She, she looks so good. Um, anyway, back to the question. Um, I think this, this, this depends quite a lot on the individual. Obviously, a lot of people um, have different bodies, different genetics, and respond to different things. So knowing your athlete is is very important for, I don't know, picking a favorite exercise. But if I have to say all round, one exercise that I really try and push almost everyone to have in their plans, and that's a deadlift. Something I've noticed with a lot of females and a lot of shows is that 
um, a lot of girls lack a lot from the rear. Mm-hmm. And obviously a deadlift being such a good posterior chain exercise is something you probably want to include provided the the athlete has no um, contraindications to doing a deadlift like, you know, certain injuries or just really, really bad, bad structure in terms of their physique, you know, very, very um, short arms or very, very long legs or extremely tall. But yeah, I would, I would have to say a deadlift. That would be my, my favorite. And would you say more of like a conventional type deadlift or would you say a variation of different types of deadlifts? I think it's important to include um, at least two variations over a long period of time. I tend to obviously look at the competitor and see what their limb, limb lengths are like. So if they have very long arms, then they're probably going to be okay with being very good at a conventional deadlift. Whereas if they had longer legs, they probably have to do a sumo to get those legs out of the way. So I would first look at that and then probably consider rotating some movements in and out or some variations. Mm-hmm. One for variety and two for you know, making that movement more effective over a longer period of time. Mm, awesome. And uh, this, so well, on the topic of females, I actually have a question for you. Yeah. And this is, how would you manipulate a female's physique if she had back-to-back shows in different federations? So for example, like an IFBB show or an ICN show back-to-back with like a WNBF show. So shows that are looking for slightly different criteria across the bikini category. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you'll find um, for for those three federations in particular, the IFBB bikini, um, the ICN female fitness category, and the WNBF, WNBF bikini look for something very, very similar in terms of muscularity and conditioning. So I would say if you are lean enough for that first show, do everything you can to maintain that condition. In terms of your physique structure, like, you know, where you have more muscle in certain areas, you obviously can't change that in the back end of a prep. But for someone like um, like my partner, who I've been coaching for a long time now, um, she didn't do the IFBB bikini, but she did AWNBS fitness model, ICN fitness model, and WNBF bikini. Mm-hmm. And she was the pro world fitness champion in the ICN fitness category and then the amateur world champion in WNBF bikini. So two different divisions but two different federations and her conditioning was relatively similar i think we got her a tiny bit softer for that last show um just to make her look a bit more like a big bikini competitor because in fitness they do like them quite dry and hard looking um, and when you when you say that like those words like looking softer or looking drier and harder how would you go about manipulating that look through training and nutrition um well given that the wnbf bikini was the last show I actually um, just slowly increased Lisa's calories and decreased her expenditure a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty pretty similar. You can, you can change it in terms of peak weeks as well. So you might even just look at spilling the client over a little bit into that bikini show, whereas the fitness one, you want to make sure they're not spilled over, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think I think a lot of it, just, just try and keep it as simple as possible. A lot of people get caught up in well, – caught up in – trying to make all these kind of changes, you know, water, sodium, carbohydrate, and thinking they're going to have a huge effect. But if the client is not in the right condition or doesn't have the right structure in terms of where their muscle is, then it's probably not going to make a difference. Yeah, I guess so much of it comes down to the obviously the pre-existing work you've already done and your yeah, genetic absolutely. structure as well, yeah. Shows the one in the off-season. Yeah. 
So moving on to the next question from a listener, his name is Tahir Kandi, and he asks, what's the most life-changing lesson you've learned through coaching clients? Jeez. Um, thanks for the question. That's a really good one. Um, I think it's it's been really good to see some people's circumstances and how they um how they sort of get through that and then apply themselves to a prep like obviously you both have competed i myself have competed and we know that getting very very lean for a show is is very very hard even in a perfect world um so some people who may be less fortunate and still being able to do this is you know it it, it kind of makes you look at yourself and go like wow i'm really lucky so i guess it's changed my life in that sense not to be um so soft <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I I agree completely because you like for example when we did a prep like we think it was hard doing it with a master's degree but then you look at other people in completely different circumstances and you say oh, shit like we had it easy so Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like these people are they're having to work double time, you know, just to afford their coaching and their comps and mm. stuff like that whereas for me I didn't I didn't have to do that and I had, you know, I was only maybe doing 25 hours in the gym of the week and 15 hours in the office. I was like, man, this is so hard. But then you got people working, you know, 60 to 70 hours a week just to make ends meet and to do this mm -hmm. show. So, yeah, know, but that, that must be so motivating for you, right? Because like I, we all have, you know, days where we have low energy and we're like, oh, I don't want to do it. But then you hear about someone else's story and you're like, man, you know what? I really can go to the gym today and I can work oh, eight hours there, whatever. <laughs> Sometimes when I talk to my clients, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm such a pussy. <laughs> I know. You hear about people waking up at like 3 a.m. and you're like, yeah. I should not be complaining about getting up at 5. <laughs> oh, I know. I've got a couple of clients that do that. I'm just like, geez, like, yeah, you're a stronger person than I am. Yes. <laughs> All right. So Jack and I um, have a question for you. And this one is related to training. So it says, during a contest prep, which variables do you like to track with your athletes? And do these change during a prep compared to their improvement season? Pretty much everything. So obviously we track sets, well, we structure sets, reps, um, ranges in terms of RPE, so how hard I actually want the clients to push, um, rest periods, and obviously we track performance, so whether the client or not is is improving or performance is going down, and as well as just a, sen a general sense of energy levels and how they feel they're performing. Um, Things as simple as like, are they getting a pump in training? Like um, pretty much everything from A to Z really. Um, the more information that I have from my clients in terms of their performance, the better. Um, the minute we start to see down, regulation, down regulations in performance that might not be, you know, and they might not be completely shredded or the calories might not be low, then we say like, okay, something is wrong. Mm. So the, the, the more variables we can track, the quicker we can point out these issues. And outside of training, what other sort of variables do you like to track in improvement seasons and competition preps? Are you talking about like nutrition or just like from training? Yeah, nutrition, sleep, like quality of life, everything. Yeah. I tend to be a little bit more relaxed with my clients in the off season. Um, I'll give them larger um, macronutrient or calorie ranges. So in prep, I might say with your carb intake, I want you to hit that. Um, within five grams either side obviously those ranges become a little bit more constricted if your calories get lower due to the percentage but you know let's say you go five grams either side of carbohydrate you might go 10 to 15 you know on mm. either side and in fact i'd prefer you to go over instead of under eating expenditure as well 
try and slow that down a little bit or I just try and be a little bit less, um, like enforce it a little bit less. If the client wants to go, you know, for a mountain hike or something and it's a little bit over their expenditure goal, I'm like, hey, it's cool, just have a little bit of extra food. But in prep, obviously, we need to be a little bit more constrictive on that. Yes. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and what else, like, do you like tracking? So you like tracking steps. How, what, do you, what are your terms of tracking body composition, like body weights, skin folds, measurements? So this is something that I'll track based on what tools I have available. So if I have a client that's willing, like I've got some clients that will say like, I want to go get a DEXA scan every month or every two months. I'm like, hey, cool, great, that's great. Obviously, DEXA scans can be can be thrown out by quite a few variables. So I will also use other methods. So things like skin folds, girth measurements, body weight, photos, and obviously with my face-to-face clients, I can see them in person as well. And making sure all those measurements or, you know, trackable progress methodologies are um, consistent in the way you take them. So same same day every week, same time, same conditions, um, yeah, same hydration status. Yeah, consistency really matters, eh? <laughs> it does, it does. It, it's one, if, if one little thing is out, it can pretty much throw everything out. So Lawrence actually asked a related question. So if you had to go without one piece of data during a contest prep check-in, what would it be? Girth measurements, yeah. Is that Lawrence yeah, Reed that asked that? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. general muscle. <laughs> Shout out to him. He's he's a client of mine, and I know he absolutely loves this podcast. And he was he was pretty excited to hear that I was actually going to be on it. So, yeah, Lawrence is awesome. We're honestly so happy to have become friends with him this year. It's it's been really great. Oh, he's a great he's a great kid. And to to think how young he is, and like mm. one, his physique and like his maturity level is just incredible. Yeah, for sure. He's made phenomenal progress over the years. Yeah. Um, and so, Joey, you said girth measurements. So what's your reasoning for that? I think with girth measurements, because obviously if if I've got a face-to-face client, I'm not going to track girth measurements. I'm tracking body weight. I'm tracking visual progress and I'm tracking skin folds. Mm-hmm. Whereas online, I'm tracking girth measurements. And the, the one or the biggest problem with that is that you're getting the client to do it themselves. So there can potentially be errors um, and I experienced that when I when I did my last contest prep I did it with an online coach so I had to take them every week and some weeks I was like man I'm measuring in the same place and it's like two or three centimeters out um, they can be helpful don't get me wrong but over a long period of time so I might look at body weight and photos on a week-to-week basis and girth measurements from a week to week I'll take it with a grain of salt yeah. and then I'll compare say every four weeks of that okay waist has dropped you know two centimeters on average over the last four weeks yeah yeah with something like that it is tough to see those week-to-week changes a bit like skin folds like i guess in a contest prep you can, in skin folds you can probably notice a difference but girth measurements is a bit different especially if you've eaten etc and stuff like that yeah, yeah and just, it would definitely be um it would definitely be frustrating trying to take your own measurements that's why like whenever jack and i take skin folds and obviously it'd be very hard to say take a subscap skin fold on yourself but always getting someone else to take them for you yeah as long as it's the, it's the same it's the same person every time and they're using a consistent method like even skin folds done by the same person can have some variations as well mm. i mean like it's very hard to get literally the exact same place every time even if you measure it you know you might Mm. be a millimeter out but as long as you're um tracking these variables over a long period of time and you can see like yeah there's going to be fluctuations week to week but over a long term 
we're going to get it right. Yeah. And so our next question is asked by another listener. His name is Lewis Vines. And he asks, what are your views on online challenges from social media influencers? And do you think that online training is the future? Thanks, Lewis. Great question. So we'll start with the challenges from fitness influencers. I think there are, obviously there are some people out there who are influencers who influence positively. Um, I, I try not to get caught up in any sort of negativity or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll look at it from a positive side and throw in a little bit of what I think is negative. But I think in a positive sense, some challenges can be fantastic if it's done by the right person or someone with scope of practice and accreditation and an actual education behind them. Um, they can be a really, really good start for someone in terms of what they want to achieve, you know, in the long term. Um, I know a lot of people who who do or specialize in doing challenges and they do it from a place of getting the client started, using it as a bit of motivation to get them going and then going into ongoing coaching. And I think from that point of view, I think challenges are a great idea. But in terms of just like doing challenges and then cycling the people out and just next, 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 it's it's not good for the industry at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess you could say there are there are some that are good, but in our day and age where fitness is becoming so popular, everyone's getting in it to make a quick buck and yeah. those challenges do do bring in a lot of money if you've got the following. Yeah, and I think especially the critical point, in my opinion, is at the end of a challenge because that's typically when the rebound of the diet occurs and when someone needs the most help. It's like a reverse diet after a contest prep uh, yeah. where they're at the highest risk of just regaining all that weight. Absolutely. I, I think the, the question always has to be what's next. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think, yeah, during during the challenge, you really want to be ingraining those lifestyle habits into the client, not just getting them to follow a specific plan and then having it come to a sudden stop and they don't know what to do anymore because they don't have a plan. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of lot of people in this day and age or a lot of people in the industry in this day and age, will um, they capitalize on the fact that everyone wants something done and they want it done yesterday. So mm. it's like, cool, you can get these results in eight weeks and they're like, wow, that's awesome. I'm going to do that. But no one's thinking about what's happening next because really some people, they just don't care. They just care about their bank account and that's what happens. But yeah, like there has to be a plan after. If you're a good coach and you legitimately care about your job, doing challenges, I think is a great idea because it gives people that motivation to get started, but there has to be follow on from that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, for the second part of that question, do you think that online training is the future? Um, I think it it's it's already sort of starting to take over. Um, but I think that there's always going to be those people that need that face-to-face approach. Um, I've had lots of clients that have come to me from other coaches and said, like, look, I tried this coach online. They were they were good, but online just isn't for me. So. Mm-hmm. I think while online training is probably starting to take over and probably will, um, especially for contest prep, um, there are always going to be a place, or there is always going to be a place for face-to-face coaching. Yeah, and I, I 100% agree because obviously already we've experienced online and in person and there is a diff- big difference between the two and just getting that relationship with the purely online individual and um, yeah, it does pose other challenges, but it's definitely doable as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's just all yeah, like I said. There's always going to be people who are going to pre- prefer one another or be okay with one another. Um, I've done face to face with a coach in my first ever prep, and then I did my next one online, and um, I didn't really have a preference. But yeah, some people have a strong preference. Like I, I even had a client say to me, like I love being coached by you. Like I would never leave, but if you were to go online. I would have to find another coach because I, mm. I can't do online. I have to I have to do face to face. Yeah. So this next question's uh, one that I'm asking personally, and it's basically about the differing bodybuilding criteria across like ICN, I guess A and B, NBA, and WNBF, and whether you see a difference in basically criteria. So like posing, does one favor leanness above size, and vice versa? Yeah, re- really good question, and I think it. A lot of it differs between who shows up on the day. I've seen shows where you might have someone that is really, really, really lean. Like I'm talking veins in their glutes. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Absolutely shredded. But then you've got some guy who may be just a touch softer, yeah. but he's just so much bigger and has so much more size. And um, some federations might go for that leaner look, but then some federations might go for the guy who who is a little bit bigger and looks like a body what looks more like a bodybuilder. Um, we have to remember that it, it is a bodybuilding show. Mm. Um, and whilst condition should definitely, you should always be in condition. You have to think about like, you know, you're getting into that condition, but at what cost are you, are yeah. you seeing all of your shape? Are you costing all of your muscle? And, and then it might be about having the conversation with that person and saying like, Hey, maybe do, do a show in another two years when you've got a bit more size on you. But mm. uh, I find that. The ICN and or competitions like the ICN and the NBA, A and B and stuff like that, because they're quite an, an amateur level show, obviously in the amateur ranks, um, conditioning will probably be favoured, I've seen, um, purely because it is an amateur show and not everyone is showing up in epic condition. So they're favouring that, which which I agree with. I agree with, I think. Condition should always be rewarded. From what I've seen in the WNBF, um, the thing with that shows everyone shows up absolutely peeled, like everyone. Um, it's insane. Like I strongly encourage you guys to try and get over there one one year and go and watch it. You will be blown away. Yeah, um, we're um we're looking forward to competing in that federation. Can't wait. Oh, uh, it's incredible. Like I couldn't could not believe my eyes. Like even the amateur, um, the amateurs over there at the world show, they're like on another level compared to our pros even here in Australia. It's mm-hmm. just nuts. Um. But at, at that federation, when everyone is bringing condition, they're really, really starting to favour at that point who's more symmetrical, who has more size, who is the more fluent poser because everyone's in condition. So you look at the next thing and that's yeah. size, symmetry, posing. Um, also, I had another question with regards to the posing. I noticed that in WMBF and in the UK as well, like when they do their rear double by, like they don't always squeeze their glutes. And like I noticed here, if you wouldn't, if you didn't, don't squeeze your glutes in a rear double by, then like obviously your striations won't show. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it just comes down to how you're taught, really. Um, some yeah. people maybe just need need a little bit more lessons on their posing. <laughs> okay yeah jack and i see photos on instagram where like whoa that is a ghetto booty <laughs> yeah or like it, it might also be the case that when that competitor squeezes their glutes they might actually look worse because their glutes might be soft but everything else is in so if oh, you right, keep yeah. your pelvis tilted the other way it might actually look better mm. um 
And if you just have the outlines and the cuts to show the shape, then you might be okay and you might get away with it. But if you're striated, squeeze your ass, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And I think uh, talking about, you know, manipulating like a physique and getting someone ready, this ties nicely into this next question. And it says, how do you like to manipulate your athlete's training program to induce hypertrophy? And how does this, how does like training programs change between an improvement season and then deep into a prep? Well, the postseason, well, the off season, um, it's all about accumulating more volume and getting stronger over time in given rep ranges and basically chasing progressive overload. Obviously, we break this, we break this down into phases. So you might have a phase where you, you know, prioritize a certain part of your physique and rotate that out. Um, let's say you do, you do three separate training cycles. You might go, let's say you need more thickness in your chest and your back. You go more thickness on the chest and the back or more sets towards the chest and back for two two blocks of that three months. And then you taper down and you bring it back in. But as long as you're prioritizing that over a period of time, then I think you'll you'll be making progress. Um, as a bodybuilder, the, the goal is to not always get bigger. Well, of course, the goal is to get bigger overall. But if you've got some serious asymmetries to your physique, um, the goal should be to bring up those symmetries because that can just make you look bigger and better on stage mm-hmm. alone. Um, but obviously just accumulating more volume over time in the off-season and, like I said, getting stronger and given rep ranges, there there is a very large amount of reps that you could do. Like back in the day, it used to be like anything less than eight reps, not going to grow, <laughs> or anything more than 15 reps is cardio. But, you no. know, I just show now that, you know, rep schemes as little as three to five could induce hypertrophy and rep ranges as large as, you know, 20 to 30 reps could induce hypertrophy. It's all, it's all about balance. Like if you're balancing everything correctly and you've got a good balance of all those rep ranges and volume is, you know, accounted for, then you're going to progress. And no, you go, I thought you were going to ask. Oh yeah. So yeah, this is basically the second half. Uh, Like in a, in, in sorry a competition prep would you still um cycle on with those uh say emphasis on chest uh for a training block or would you basically try and maintain everything throughout the whole prep i think in prep it it just becomes about managing really um trying to make sure you're maintaining your performance as best as possible i find in the first sort of 30 to 40 percent of the prep most people are still able to improve Mm. and then it just becomes you'll get to a point some competitors hit it earlier, some competitors hit it later. Some competitors, you know, depending on their training age, they don't hit it at all. They just keep improving. At that point, when they do hit that point, it becomes a case of just managing it and trying to maintain your performance as best as possible. So maybe maybe starting to cycle out the bigger lifts. Um, I find that a lot of competitors, like figure competitors and bodybuilders who have to be excruciatingly lean, doing things like, heavy squats or heavy bench press towards the back end of prep is really, really, um, really hard and taxing and fatiguing. So you might want to swap to like a machine press or a leg press or a hack squat. It's easier on the joints as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think in prep, it, it, a lot of it just becomes about managing it. And in terms of like, in terms of training volume, would you ever like lean towards, all right, slightly moving away from really heavy squats and, uh, going for a higher rep range um, with a slightly lower weight, but you're doing more reps so that overall the volume load is the same. Would you aim for something like that? Yeah, I think in the off season you could 
you could look at doing a lot of heavier work. Um, so you could you could push your, push some of your training down to that lower rep scheme, say three to six reps. But in prep, I mean, it, it gets a it gets a hell of a lot harder to maintain that really really heavy load at those lower reps. Mm-hmm. So it, it might be worth making your reps a little bit higher and the load a little bit lower. Um, obviously, a lot of people back in the day would say like, yeah, like higher reps and and lower weight burns more fat. But really, it's just a way to accumulate more volume. Yeah, yeah, and it's just a way to get your heart beating like up in the 160s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, like I was saying, it's it's all about managing. So if you can still handle, you know, like heavier loads in prep, then I, I think it's a really good idea to try and keep them in. But for those who necessarily, will, it might take them backwards, you're better off biting the bullet and going to a safer option, such as switching a, a four sets of three to five squat to a three sets of six to eight hack squat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's just an example. So we have another question from Kate and she asks, how long of an off season is generally required to make changes to your physique for males and females? Cool. Good question. Thanks, Kate. Really, it depends on the person. There are a lot of variables that come into play when we talk about improving from season to season and how long you need. The biggest one is training age, I think. Well, training age and genetics. So some people obviously put on muscle easier than others. But the lower your training age, the easier it's going to be to put on more muscle. So I I have a general rule of thumb, and I say to people when they've done their first show, provided they're a fit, relatively low training age, um, maybe like one to two years, I'd say you can you can get back on stage in 12 to 18 months and have made significant improvements. And then from then on, it becomes 18 to 24 months as a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, the more you, the more, or the longer you have trained, the longer your off season should be, I believe, because it, it gets a lot harder to make those changes. Um, sometimes yeah. as well, like an exception to that rule is that someone who completely butchers their post-show approach and they stack on, you know, 20 kilos in three or four weeks, then it becomes a case of having to deal with that, get the calories up, diet them back down again so that are they're at an appropriate starting point and then you've lost all that time by trying to create a good starting point. So then you might have to go into the off-season again. So there are always exceptions to this, but I think they're a, they're a relatively good guide. I would take as long as possible, really. Yeah, we completely agree. And especially, like you said, for the young competitors, like like maybe teens or juniors, if they want to like hop on stage more frequently just to, because you only get to compete in those categories once, then absolutely um, mm, might as well make the most of it, I think. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, younger competitors can definitely compete um, more frequently. Um, Lawrence is a good example. I think he went, I believe, 18 months after his first show, and now he's going 24 months. Mm. Yeah, I think that that was a great decision. And yeah, from how he um, his physique changed between those two seasons was amazing. Like yeah. in his legs and his delts, just everywhere, really. Yeah, and I I think um, yeah, Lawrence made exceptional improvements. Joey, I I have to ask now, like, what's your take on competitors literally doing back to back seasons? So you might see a bikini girl do season A, and then she does season B. Yeah. I think for bikini, I, I, I've spoken about this quite a lot, you know, to a lot of people, and I get I get this question actually quite frequently. And I think for a division like bikini, it can be okay because they don't have to be super lean, mm-hmm. um, provided they're not doing something like the IFBB. Let's say it's an ICN bikini competitor, then 
you could probably go season to season and slightly improve, but I try and push people out of that as much as I possibly can. I think I've only had one or two competitors in my six years of coaching go back-to-back seasons, and they were both bikini competitors. And they both improved, but um, it's more – you have to start looking at the psychological things at that point. Mm, Psychological kind of things um, in relation to bodybuilding is is such a big thing and such a misunderstood thing as well. And I think more coaches need to be more more aware of that side of things. Yeah. And I I have another question for you, Joey. So this is, how have you developed a sense of being honest with your athletes in terms of their body composition? And I'd be really interested to ask, have you ever been in a situation where you've had to actually pull the plug and tell someone, I don't actually want you to compete this season or I don't want you to compete this show? Yeah. So I think it's, um, I think it's important to, um, or when you start working with someone, it's important to set an expectation of what you expect of them and what they can expect of you. And I think when you set those expectations straight away, the client feels a little bit more comfortable because they know what they're going to get out of you and you know what you're getting out of them. And if neither side is getting that, then you both know that it's not going to work. So establishing that trust early on is very important to be able to create an honest, open line of communication with your clients. And in terms of having to pull out pull someone out of show um it has not happened much at all maybe one or two times because usually if i if i have a client that is just not responding they'll usually pull themselves out and quite mm. early because they know what i expect and they know what they expect of themselves and every time that has happened it, it has not happened very frequently or much at all every time that has happened we've both agreed and we've worked together for the next season and they've come in fine Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you made to set expectations at the start because you don't want to get to, you know, four weeks out. And as a coach, you don't want to be too nervous to tell your client like, hey, like you're not going to be ready or you're not going to be as lean as we think you were going to be or almost like you don't want to be too harsh or I'm assuming a lot of coaches don't want to like face that like telling a client, hey, we're going to actually need to drop your carbs or we need to drop your calories quite a bit if we want to get into condition or we're going to have to up training volume. We might have to add in a few cardio sessions. They might just be hesitant to do that because you do care about your client and like, you know, it sucks. But yeah, it's about having that balance of doing what you need to do to get into the shape. Yeah. And it it also depends on the, the actual athlete and the qualities that the athlete possesses in terms of their mentality. Like if you've got someone who they might be a bit behind the eight ball, but you know, as a competitor, they, they know how to push and they will mm-hmm. do everything that you tell them to do. You can pretty much get those people shredded in a pretty short amount of time, you know, because they're just willing to do it. But in this day and age, it's pretty hard to find people like that. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, yeah. everyone's all about doing the absolute bare minimum. And while I'm, while I am about doing, you know, the minimum amount possible to elicit the maximum result possible, sometimes the maximum result is not enough mm. and you, you need to actually push harder. So it's about doing what's required of you in a given time. And if you've got someone that can actually do that and adhere to that, then yeah. But I will say as well, um, men, you can push a lot harder because their physiology isn't as complex as a female. And they mm. typically will respond okay. But females, from what I've seen, you'll push them to a certain point and their body will just bounce back. Yeah, it'll fight. <laughs> the bar of it. So 
with females, it's important to establish a really good starting point so you don't, one, have to have that conversation and two, have to be put in a position where you have to do things that might be outside of what you would expect healthy. So talking about starting points, I know that, you know, you've been giving quite a few lectures recently over here in Australia, um, talking about, you know, a good starting position to start a prep in. Can you touch on that at all? Yeah, sure. Again, starting points differ a lot on the division that you're doing. I think, like I said, for females, it's important you really, really push the starting point. And it might even be a phase of prep that you lay out and say, like, this is going to, we're going to have a pre-prep. Because for females, obviously, they have they have a much lower body mass. So they may have to lose weight at slower rates. So if a female needs to lose, like, say, come down from 55 kilos down to 45 kilos for a, for a show, then that's 10 kilos. And that's, that's quite a hit in terms of the percentage of their body weight. So maybe don't leave 10 kilos to get off if you can avoid it. Yeah. Um, if you're that small. But like I said, physiology females is a lot more complex so you're dealing with a lot more issues and you may need a lot more time um and not to sound sexist or anything but females tend to be a lot more emotional um (laughs) and we we know that um so you might face more adherence issues with some women um and don't get me wrong there there are some males out there who are like that too but i've just found from working with both parties predominantly women is that females struggle a lot more in terms of adherence Mm-hmm. and it gets hard so yeah it's, it's important to establish a good starting point especially for women not to say it's not important for men but men can get away with an average starting point i would say this, and, this next question is actually related as well so what's your opinion on competitors getting ready early and or being called too lean it's a good question Again, it's. I feel like a broken record here, but again, it, it depends on the athlete and it depends on. No, the that's that's sex. our answer to almost every question as well. <laughs> it <laughs> depends. I, I feel I feel like a broken record, but at the same time, I feel like if you get asked a lot of questions in this industry and that's not your first response, don't really have any idea what you're doing. Yeah. So one size fits all is not not a good idea. Exactly. Um, I think again, it's a balancing act. Um, you want to be in condition early but not too early, but not too late. It's kind of like the case of bikini competitors. We want you lean, but not too lean, with a little bit of muscle, but not not too much muscle. Again, it depends on the athlete. If you've got someone who's got that mentality of we'll do whatever it takes and they're a real tough nut, then you can get them lean pretty early and they can be okay. But I think if you get lean, well, I'm talking contest lean as well, like striated glutes, probably more than maybe six to eight weeks out. Um, it's going to be a really hard slog, and I, I find I've, I've seen it a lot over the last five or six years, people who do this, and their physique just kind of loses a bit of pop towards the end. Um, they just don't fill out as well, and they just don't look as good. Um, I've seen competitors over the years who look phenomenal, like four, six, eight weeks out, and then by the time they get to stage, it, it just doesn't look the same. But, yeah, I, I would say if you're a bodybuilder or a figure competitor, Try and be ready three to four weeks early so you can just refine a little bit. Um, yeah, and if, if you're pulling in really early, maybe just slow it down a bit. And if you were, let's say, three to four weeks out and you were, you know, in condition, how would you manipulate their training and nutrition? Would you try to, you know, eat them up into the show? Yeah, I, I would. Um, I'd try and slowly reverse them in. So they're, I think 
if let's say for example you're really really lean and you, you know glute striations and hamstring separation or whatever eight weeks out it probably doesn't matter if you reverse into the show because they're still going to feel shit because mm. being shredded it doesn't matter how much food you're eating you you're going to feel bad yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so i'd say three to four weeks out if you can get them to that point at you know if you can get them ready at three to four weeks out then that's enough time to be able to eat into the show you minimize the time spent feeling absolutely rubbish, more or less get in and get out. And I, I think that's good. Whereas a lot of down regulation can occur when you're extremely lean and it, mm. it's just going to take longer to recover. The longer your competition lean, the longer you've spent dieting, the longer it's going to take to recover and the harder it's going to be to recover. Yeah. And I, I know that again, this is going to be individual for everyone, but yeah. given a ballpark figure, how many weeks out do you like to start your contest prep clients? So based on my presentation um, that I've given, like you said, I've given in Australia over the last couple of months, I had ballpark figures for every division. I think off the top of my head, not looking at the slides, I think for bikini, it was 14 to 18 weeks out. Mm-hmm. Um, female fitness and men's fitness and physique was 18 to 22 and then bodybuilding and figure was 24 to 30 but what i will say and what i do say um at the lectures is divisions like female fitness and men's physique their condition is going to another level like these men's physique guys they're bodybuilders in board shorts yep <laughs> like a lot of the physique guys that i've had over the last couple of years actually have striated glutes so like you really like i don't i don't really differ the prep anymore um, between those two guys, it's just their training is different because they have to have more emphasis on certain body parts. But yeah, so like there, there are always rules of that to be broken. So you, you, you can bend the rules for certain competitors. If you've got someone who just naturally stays extremely lean in the off season and that's based on their genetics, then you might be able to do a shorter prep. But for some people, you know, it's going to take longer, obviously. I, I've had a female figure competitor have to diet for 36 weeks into the first show. Um, mm. And I've also prepped a men's physique pro in five weeks, and he won two pro shows. Uh-huh. Damn, those are like two ends of the spectrum. <laughs> exactly, <That's> crazy. <laughs> two ends of the bell curve. I mean, you know, and that's why I always say to people: this is a little bit off topic. That's why I always say to people that when you're when you're using evidence based practice, it's not all about going off a study because they're averages. You know, mm, you've got exactly. you've got people on different ends of the bell curve, mm-hmm. and people in the middle. So it doesn't always account for outliers on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, and that's the, that's why I also tell people when they use the like the ISAC body fat um, calculator, like that was based off a handful of individuals, and you can't really be using that too accurately for yourself. So no. Um, I think we have one more question by Georgia Rig Fit, and she's just asked you what qualifications do you have, and why do you like coaching? Okay. Good question. Um, so qualifications, um, obviously I started with getting my certificate three and four in um, fitness, so accrediting me to just be a personal trainer. Um, and then five or six years ago, there were there was not really much um, qualification based around nutrition for personal trainers. So a lot of new, not a lot of PTs would just, you know, operate outside that scope and, um, and prescribe nutrition. And I, I certainly stepped outside of that scope by prepping people without a qualification but as soon as that became available i went and did it so i i did well i did my level one strength and conditioning course i think that's 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 a really good course for um personal trainers to do if you're going to prep people because it gives you a better understanding of 
um, training and training periodization. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did my um, ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, um, Sports Nutrition Specialist Exam. And I did that along with the Sports Nutrition Australia qualification. So that's that's the qualification that you need to have in Australia to be more or less a registered nutritionist and insured outside of a degree, a university degree. And Sports Nutrition Australia is kind of the only the only body at the moment that is willing to tackle that side of things and provide um, scope of practice for um, sports nutritionists in Australia. And that they're now looking down the the whole of bodybuilding because there obviously a lot of a lot of issues uh, coming from you know bodybuilding and contest preps and stuff like that. So yeah, and that's that's the extent of my current qualifications. But right now I'm studying my postgraduate diploma um, in applied sports nutrition as well, which will then probably late next year lead into me applying to do my masters. Oh, nice. Wow, that's very, that's super exciting. And like we were speaking off air before and you're actually in LA right now about to attend an ISSN <laughs> conference. So I guess there's almost an opportunity for travel there. Absolutely. I, I mean, like if, you, if you've been in it for a long time and, you know, you are sort of extending, extending your, um, your resume of qualifications and it's important to be able to go to these things. And obviously as, as a coach, these things are, you know, you can write them off on tax. So it, there, there really is no excuse for trainers and coaches like, um, like you and I to travel and attend these things. Um, you know, we're, we're in an industry where things change um, quite a lot and they're changing more than ever now with more research coming out on athletic populations that could relate a lot to bodybuilders as well. So it's important to stay educated. So, I, I, yeah, like I said, there's no excuse for people not to stay educated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, Joey, uh, talking about coaching, I just want to ask, what would be your best advice for new coaches entering this industry? I would say, first and foremost, get in the industry for the right reasons. If you're getting in the, in, if you're getting in the industry for a sole purpose to make money, not going to make any money. Fake passion is exposed pretty damn quick. Um, because the minute you do start to get busy, if you're not passionate about it, you'll get lazy and your clients are obviously not going to appreciate that. So I think first and foremost, get into it for the right reasons and actually care about your job. I, I have had a similar question asked by a lot of people over the years and like, how do you market yourself? You know, like what marketing tools do you use? And I can honestly say I actually haven't paid a cent for marketing or advertising in my whole life. Because if you if you just get good results for people and you you operate with best practice, people are going to say good things about you and your clients are going to refer people. So you'll end up with a plethora of people that want to be coached by you. So I would say that's that's first and foremost the most important thing. And I would say also get qualification, well get the necessary qualifications to actually operate in the right scope. So if you want to do nutrition, you need either to get a degree, you need to do a um. A qualification through Sports Nutrition Australia, and then if you're looking to get into the contest prep side of things, you probably need to consider doing the postgraduate diploma as well. Yeah, I think that is wonderful advice, and I really love how you touched on you know truly being passionate about this because I remember speaking to a sports dietitian once who she specializes in bodybuilding, and she was telling me you know I could teach any dietitian you know like sports nutrition and how to write these specific meal plans and specific components for prepping a client. But 
you can't teach someone passion, you know, that already has to be within you. So I, I totally agree. And when I, when I stepped into sort of the personal training industry, the first thing that I started actually knuckling down on was nutrition because it just, the human body is just so fascinating. And that's what led me down the path of wanting to go down the road of specializing in nutrition and sports nutrition, because it's just amazing what you can do with the body. And that's why I love bodybuilding as well. Mm. All right. And we have our final listener question. This is from Sebastian Howard. And it asks, would Joey rather fight 100 hamster-sized hippos or one hippo-sized hamster? Wow. <laughs> the most important question for last. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, save the best till last, right? Um, thanks, Sebastian. Um, yeah, geez. Um, well, the way I see it is I, from what I remember, I think I read this somewhere, is that hippos are quite aggressive animals. Um <laughs> So I don't think I'd want to fight a lot of hippos. <laughs> Hamsters are—they're cute. I, I'm pretty sure they're friendly. Um, they're lovers, not fighters. And I like to see myself as more of a lover than a fighter. So maybe, <laughs> maybe a hippo-sized hamster, and then we could like become friends or something. But <laughs> okay. If I had to, if if I'm talking from purely having to fight and becoming friends wasn't an option, then probably the hippo-sized hamster. <laughs> that is a great answer. <laughs> Make peace, not war, right? all right and joey the final question we always ask our guests on the podcast is one interesting thing that you learned this week and it doesn't have to be nutrition or fitness related it could just be something that you didn't already know at the beginning of this week cool okay um so what i learned this week is i've been to america the last four years in a row and i haven't really the whole time i've been here i haven't really had a hell of a lot of downtime in relation to being able to train and eat and stuff like that. But this time I have because I'm here with another sports nutritionist. So we've been going to the gym every day. We've been making sure we're, we're eating right and stuff like that. And we were at the gym the other day. We are at um, Gold's in Hollywood. And I'm not sure if you know him, Kevin Connolly. He's a um, – do you know the show Entourage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so E. Oh, right. Yeah, he, he was in there and he was standing next to us and he went up and <laughs> – ordered a shake and they they make shakes at the gym and the guy was like oh yeah do you want creatine or glutamine or do you want both he's like oh no creatine just the glutamine thanks and then later on we went to a sub shop just to get some protein for our travels because obviously it gets a little bit harder to hit your protein when you're traveling so we went and got some protein and the first thing the guy tried to do was sell us on glutamine Mm. (laughs) and he's like saying yeah like all the guys are getting into it and like me and being the guy who i'm over here alex we were really trying to sort of hold our tongue and not go full ham on this guy for recommending something that yeah. shouldn't necessarily be recommended as a priority. So I guess what I've learned is Americans just love glutamine and they're kind of a little bit behind in terms of, um, you know, evidence-based practice. What was his reasoning for selling it? Like, was he trying to convince you of all the magical things it would do? Yeah, he was saying, well, it's the most important amino acid in the body. I said, oh, it's, oh, wow. It's the most abundant. More important than leucine, eh? <laughs> It's the most abundant. I wouldn't say it's the most important. The fact that it's the most abundant makes it probably the least important to him. Yes, exactly. It's non-rate limiting, so. <laughs> and he was saying, yeah, but like, 
you know, your 60 to 70% of your skeletal muscle is made up of this stuff. And I was like, oh, man. Like, you just no, got to smart, keep smiling and nodding. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, cool, man. No, it's all right. I'll just, I'll just grab this one. Thanks. And then, then he tried to sell us on some bone broth protein because it had collagen in it. I was like, oh, man, here we go. Straight oh, down. Jesus. Yeah, and I guess that's an important lesson as well. Don't always take advice from someone who, who looks good as well. Like, you know, someone exactly, can look yeah. fantastic and be a, you know, be a bodybuilder, but you know, they might not always know what they're doing. Yes. <laughs> Don't trust anyone who doesn't use creatine. <laughs> oh, so true. So true. I, I, I was just shocked when he was like, nah, no creatine, but I want the glutamine. I was like, man, come on. <laughs> All right. So, Joey, thank you so much for joining us today. And please let the listeners know where can they find you? Where can they get in touch with you? You know, keep up with all your stuff. No worries. Um, thanks for having me on here. It was, it was truly an honor to be on here. Um, I've been following along for you guys and the information you're putting out is, um, is incredible. I mean, there's not, there's not a hell of a lot of these podcasts, um, solely on bodybuilding, especially in Australia. Um, I know another great podcast, um, Revive Stronger by Steve Hall. Yeah. Uh, his is really great, but that's obviously not in Australia. So I, th- I think it's really good what you guys are doing. Um, but you. yeah, you, you can find me on, um, Instagram. My tag is at Joey Cantlin PT and my email is Joey Cantlin PT at gmail.com. And obviously you can find me on Facebook as well, but Instagram is where you'll find all my client results and stuff like that. So great. Great. Yeah. And, um, you guys will definitely, so Joey's part of HFS, so you'll definitely see him around all of the shows coming up in season B and every season to come after that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. You see me just come up and say good day. <laughs> All right, so guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Joey, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we will catch you next week. 